I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. This episode is part of the silver lining theme in which I will try to explore some of the bright side of the COVID-19 crisis with some of my wisest friends. Today's guest is someone I hold in extremely high regard. A three times Nobel Peace Prize nominee, Dr. Silla Elworthy. Silla is a peace builder. She has been a distinguished activist for peace for over 30 years. She has met with the policymakers from all five nuclear powers. She met with their critics and she worked to develop an effective dialogue. She founded the Oxford Research Group, Peace Direct, and co-founded Rising Women, Rising World and FemEQ. Her latest book, is the business plan for peace, building a world without war. And her TED talk has been viewed over one and a half million times. Sila, I cannot thank you enough for being with me today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm delighted to be with you. Sila, I want to start with a burning question. You know, I've been following your work for every time you have a talk online, I'm there. So how does a Mo become a Sila? How did you end up being here? A Mo is already a stiller with a business acumen included. That's good. Thank you. No, I'm nowhere near, by the way. I think from an impact point of view, you're way ahead. I aspire to be. But what was the story? How did you end up here? I think I had very little choice, Mo, because from the age of 13, I couldn't really do anything else. My instruction from the universe was to be horrified by violence, my own violence included, and to do my best to stop people killing each other. And so that's what I've been up to for over 70 years. How does the universe give us instructions? Oh, I had a couple of very, very good instructions. One was when I was 11, I had four big brothers and they were all faster and cleverer and everything than me. And when I was 11, they taught me how to fire a shotgun and I thought I was incredibly clever took the shotgun out into the woods and I did something taboo I saw a nest high up in the tree a nest and I pointed the gun up and pulled the trigger and down on my head came pieces of stick pieces of eggshell pieces of baby chick and the sky feathers of the mother bird and I was so shocked by what I had done and the violence of which I was capable that I took the gun home and never touched it again. And that kind of catapulted me into what I do now. So the core question, Silan, I know that you spent your life trying to understand, but not everyone would have reacted the same way. Some people would have actually found joy in that and shot again and again. Yeah. What, what, what makes someone react like you and someone else look at violence as yeah, I can do that, or I can even enjoy that, or maybe I don't see that this is wrong. What's the difference? I think it was my mum 
Mo, I think it was my mum. She connected me with nature. She was a very good gardener. Well, she grew all the food that we lived on and milked the cows and fed the chickens and everything. And I did that with her as a child. So I got a very quick, basic introduction, acquaintance, learning from nature. And nature has been my grounding ever since. And I'm quite convinced that having our feet on the ground and our hands in the earth brings us back to reality. It's common sense. It's So I think it was that combination of a balance of masculine influence and my mother being very practical woman and very, she was quite a hard taskmistress. She was, she wasn't a softie, but she asked a lot, but she was very fair. You start from a childhood where your own act of violence, which is not considered violent by many, catapults you into a career where you're going to say nothing. No one is ever going to be hurt again. I'm going to dedicate my life to this. But then yet you go to some of the most violent places on the planet. Does it make sense in a way? I mean, it's almost if your heart is so fragile to see eggshells and baby chick as something that demands a change, being in the middle of war zones and conversations around the most violent acts in the world, how could you take that? What are some of the experiences that you can share with us that maybe wanted you to revisit your decision or maybe double down and commit to that decision? Well, something happened when I was 13, which also sort of cemented this in my life. I was in my parents' living room watching a grainy old black and white TV and I saw Soviet it was the Soviet Union then, tanks charging into Budapest and kids my age putting their hands up like this and trying to stop them and getting mown down. And I was so shocked that I went upstairs and started packing my suitcase. And my mum came up and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to Budapest. <laughs> At 13. <laughs> and, and she said, what for? And I said, there's something so horrible happening there. I have to go now. And she said, don't be so silly. And I burst into tears. And bless her, she got it. She got the point. She got that this was so important to me. So she said, okay, you're too young to be any use. You need training. And if you will just unpack your suitcase, I will see that you get it. And she did. She sent me off age 16 to work in a holiday home for concentration camp survivors. And I spent the summer peeling potatoes and listening to the stories of people who'd been in Auschwitz. And I thought if they can survive that and come out of it still human, what can I do? That was it. Simple as what that. What an amazing mother. Yeah. So it wasn't summer camp to learn how to code on computers. It was to help those who are surviving concentration camps. And so it touched my heart. Of course it did. Of course it did. It touches my heart even now. I mean, a lot of people fear that. In my book, I tell the story of my wonderful son, Ali, and how he always gave what he had, but he wouldn't just give something to a homeless person. He would actually sit next to the homeless person, which I admit is something until today, I find very difficult. Every time my brain goes like, 
don't do that, Mo. You don't know what he's going to say to you. And they're mostly amazing people. They have a story. They're wonderful in every way. Some of them, of course, have been suffering for so long that they are not easy to deal with. Every human is a human. And putting yourself in touch with those experiences, in my personal belief, is the best teacher ever. It's difficult. I think it's spot on. I think your son is right. Yeah. So you go from there, 16 years of age, and then your journey takes you where? Uh, first of all, to work in refugee camps for Vietnamese refugees from the Vietnam War. And then I went to Algiers because it was just after the Algerian War. And I heard there were a lot of orphans from the war. And I found my way to an orphanage for Algerian kids and worked there for a bit. And then I got on a cargo boat in Bordeaux in France and went all the way around the west coast of Africa. And this cargo boat stopped at all the ports on the west coast. So I got to visit Senegal and Conakry and we ended up in the Congo. And Congo, the two Congos, Belgian and French, were at war with one another then. So it was quite, quite exciting. So these are the years where all of your friends were partying? How was I? Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about that. <laughs> the question for me is, you make this your career, right? Yeah, without knowing that, I was just sort of following my nose. But I, yeah, I didn't really see a career in it, certainly. Exactly. I mean, because in all honesty, this is not really a career by the definition that we know for a career, right? When you build Peace Direct, you're not expecting Peace Direct to be acquired for a few million dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And you're not getting a pension either. <laughs> so. And you're not getting a pension either. But one look at you and you realize that you feel that you lived your purpose. You realize you're glowing. Every time I see you on stage, every time I speak to you, you're just glowing. Is this the paycheck that we receive for doing those kinds of things? I have no idea, Mo. I think I'm just lucky that I have very good health. I have a garden. I can grow my own food and food for my families around where I live. And I think the other thing was when I was 30 and living in South Africa and just after my daughter was born, I got, uh, I don't know if it's a virus or what it is, it's called encephalitis. And I was in a coma for two weeks And when I came out of the coma, I had the most incredible migraines for six years. And there was one one thing that went round and round in my head the whole time. And that was this question, who am I? Who am I? What am I doing here? And it was that that drew me into meditation. It drew me into learning about how I tick exam self-examination self-reflection all those things and i came to believe what i learned from those teachers my different teachers some buddhist some not that that kind of you know this self-reflection is essential if we're going to be able to be present when there's a crisis Otherwise, our fear takes. You talk a lot about fear. And I think, let me actually go to the bigger picture first. One of the things that you believe is very important for the message that I hear you saying quite often is how to deal with the bully Mm. without being a thug. And one of them is the idea of acknowledging and overcoming your fear. 
teach us a bit about that. I think fear, especially in those times, the uncertain times that we're living, is becoming a big part of our everyday psyche. Absolutely. And it's the part of our brain that gets activated when we're shocked or afraid. And the key thing I think then is if we have done some preparation in sense of a daily practice of whether it's meditation or self-reflection, it doesn't really matter. But if we got into the habit of being aware of what's going on and being able to say, okay, I'm scared, then the big thing is to breathe. Because when we're scared, the blood doesn't circulate the brain or the heart. It just, we freeze or we fight or we flight or we flee. And what we want is to be present. And so what we need to do immediately, as soon as we're aware that we're scared, is to breathe. And that's like breathing in for a count of five, pausing, and then breathe out for a count of five and pausing. And keeping on doing that until we calm down. And it's only when we're calm that we can use our mind and our heart and do, hopefully, the right thing instead of escalating the problem or getting ourselves shot. Getting ourselves shot or shooting the other, yeah. But then what you're saying here is almost not human nature. I mean, the reason for fear is to flood your system with adrenaline so that you engage in fight or flight. This is, by definition, going to be an active, if not aggressive, response. And what you're saying is the other way around is, is no, 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 hold on. Any action you will take while in fear is not going to be good for anyone, let alone you. And you might as well just do the opposite, just sit with it, literally sit with it. Well, sit with it and be present. Do you know that story about Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes? I do, but our listeners have to listen to it. Shall I tell it? Oh, I... oh yeah, absolutely. I've never met him, but I read about him and he's a great hero of mine. He was leading his men down a street patrol in Iraq three months after the American invasion when you still could have a foot patrol down the street. And all of a sudden, out of the houses and the mosques on either side of the street came furiously angry men screaming and shouting in Arabic. And the young soldiers didn't have any Arabic and were scared. In that instant, Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes strode into the middle of the whole throng with his weapon pointed at the sand and gave his men an order they had never heard in their lives. Kneel. So they wobbled to the ground in their heavy body armor and their helmets and everything and pointed their weapons at the sand and lowered their heads. The whole crowd grew silent. And after about three or four minutes, everyone went home. So what that young lieutenant colonel did, he had the presence to be aware of what was happening and to use the absolute right response. Because at somewhere in his brain, he knew that when people are extremely angry, it's probably because they've been humiliated. And the best antidote humiliation is respect. It's the most difficult to do. Because when somebody's very angry with you, to remember that it's coming probably from some humiliation, either yourself or somebody else has humiliated them, and the best thing you can do, and the most difficult, is to show them. Yeah, of course. 
Do you blame the Iraqis? What do you mean? Do you blame them for coming out of their homes angry? I have no idea what provoked it. I mean, something must have provoked this for them to react in that way, which was such a shock and a surprise to these troops. They weren't congenitally angry. Something had happened, but I don't know what. Yeah. I've never actually, I've rarely ever shared this in public. One of my personal experiences, I'm a Middle Eastern, so you get raised with ideals, right? You get told this person is your enemy, that person is your friend. And the media is a magnifying glass, so it's basically ignores the bigger picture and just focuses on tiny details and magnifies them. And so when 9-11 happened, I was in my office at Microsoft at the time. On top of us, three floors up, was the biggest media company in Egypt. So we get the news of 9-11. And so we go upstairs, we sit there and we watch the coverage of plane after plane hitting the World Trade Center. And I think it was an incredible turning point in my life because I got floods of emotions. Every one of them was very strong. And all of them were seemed logical. It's like the first emotion was like, oh my God, who does this? People are dying, right? Then the second emotion is, is this in America? These are the angry people that are taking revenge at what America did to them. And each of those emotions in my mind at the beginning was justified. It's like to care about the people dying is justified. To care about, you know, the people that feel that they've been violated is also justified. And then I realized that all of them are wrong, that all of those emotions are wrong, that the fact that we are allowing ourselves to get engaged in all of this, the only right emotion here is to say, no one should die. No one on any side should die. And to recognize that, you kneel. You suddenly say, you know what? No human life is worth my ego. I don't know how people miss that. In your experience, You've come across probably some of the biggest egos. How would you change that? How would you remind someone that killing is not the right path? It depends what mood they're in. But if somebody is very preaching and very strung up with their opinions and so on, I say to them, would you be willing, this is the key phrase, would you be willing to sit down with me and you talk for five minutes about this issue and how you feel about it. And I will listen to you so carefully that after five minutes, I can feed back to you what you've said and what your strong feelings are. And then we'll swap over and I will talk for five minutes about what matters to me and ask you to listen to me so carefully that you can then feed back to me what I've said. And nearly every time what happens is that we move in that process, we move from I'm right and you're wrong, like point finger, to oh my god, is that how he feels? I love this. Yeah, he becomes or she becomes a human being who has feelings rather than lecturing or belaboring me with opinions. I get to understand their feelings, which is where we can connect. And because you're sitting down and listening. I'm going to assume here that you're not like the rest of us, so you can actually focus completely and listen. Or are you like the rest of us in the first half minute or a minute, you go like, I still freaking hate them. I think everything. 
<laughs> right? Has practice improved that or do you still have to resist at the beginning? I think it's because at heart I'm an obedient person. And if I know <laughs> that I've said, I'm going to listen to you so carefully that I can repeat back to you what you said, then that's what I'll do. <laughs> okay. But obviously it doesn't always work, but it's a way of stopping people in the midst of their tirade or their lecture or belaboring another person with their opinions, which opinions aren't nearly as interesting as feeling. Oh, that's a, we won't let that one pass that quickly. This is easily said, but that's not how we live in the modern world. Unfortunately, that's not how we communicate. We're not even in touch with our own emotions to start. Exactly. Exactly. So whenever possible, it's great to switch from at least to get a connection with the other person or people. For example, whenever I start a meeting, say 10 or 12 people, I say, let's have a, a quick check-in. Each person has 30 seconds to say, how are you now? How are you really? Somebody will say, well, oh, I had such a job getting here and I'm so stressed and I just don't know how to manage my life. And you go on and you get much more of a, sense of who they are than if they give you their biography. Mm. In my second book, I talk about that, not published yet. I talk about the idea. Yeah, I, I talk about the idea of how we got so used to, if you're asked, how are you? You say, I'm fine. I'm doing great. And, and I actually invite people to literally spend 10 seconds before you answer and actually say how you feel. Like, I feel honored to be sitting in front of you. I feel so concerned that we will not capture the audio in the best possible quality and my neck hurts a little. That's how I feel, right? And it's just an incredible moment of reflection, of connection to how I feel, which I think is the very first beginning of connecting to you and how you feel. If I can't connect with me, how can I connect with you? How do you feel, by the way, Sina? I feel very excited by this conversation. I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm impressed by your flexibility and what interests you. I oh. think it's unusual. If I had the choice, I actually was not giving you a compliment when I said, how can a Mo become a Scylla? I think our world is in a very, very, very difficult place. And I know you've gone to the extreme end of nonviolence, but I believe nonviolence is needed in every part of our life. So your advice today for a couple in a relationship that are arguing. That idea of five minutes of listen carefully and repeat, that actually ends the violence. One of the things that really touched my heart and hurt me, and sadly is during COVID-19, while we were so focused on how the virus is killing people, we were completely ignoring domestic violence and how domestic violence was rising. And that's to me, I don't know if, if I'm allowed to say that, but if nature and a virus is threatening us, that's one thing. But if we are hurting each other, that's unacceptable. I don't know what happened to people's empathies. Again, you, you really didn't answer my question. How do the other people, so you told me how you ended up being so empathetic. How do others end up being so violent? Ah, usually because they've been treated violently as children. That's usually the reason they've been in a violent family or a violent situation as street kids or in fights. I woke up the day after Christmas and I suddenly had this premonition that something was coming towards us 
which was going to demand everything human that we've got. And I thought we were unprepared for this. So I started to write down everything that I know and all my colleagues have learned about conflict and about how to transform conflict. Because conflict in itself is just energy. There's nothing wrong with it. It's how we deal with it. So I wrote it all down and it's just been published. And the reason I mention it is because I knew that the title had to be about the heart. In the end, I realized that the work we do internally and with our families to develop good communication and listening expands the heart. It makes us have a bigger heart. And so the little book, this tiny little book, is called The Mighty Heart. And I believe our job in life is to develop a mighty heart that's big enough to contain the personal people that we're with who are irritating right through to violent. I think I'm going to tear up, actually. My son, as you know, communicates to me in music. So after he left our world, he just sends me songs at proper times with very clear mathematical signals. And I'm very serious math geek, so it's not to be missed. On his birthday this year, he sent me a song that said, everybody knows that the plague is coming. Everybody knows that it's moving fast. And then the end of the song, and for a very interesting reason, I normally look for an answer. I actually think of him as my mentor and my guide. And so I basically look for, so what do I do, Ali? Tell me what you want me to do. And the whole song did not have a single action I can do about it until the very last phrase and the very last sentence said, take one last look at this sacred heart before it blows. And when a heart blows, that's not a bad thing. When a heart blows, it opens up. And so in a way, when you were talking now, I suddenly get it. He was basically saying, go back and visit the heart. Just build even a conflict with a virus. I think what's happening is the world is sending us a signal somehow saying, your heart needs to blow up. We really need to get back to what makes us human. Isn't that true? Absolutely. I believe it is in a way nature's way of saying, I didn't want to do this to you, but you wouldn't listen. You wouldn't listen, yeah. You've ruined my forests. You've burned my nature. You've polluted my seas. You've muddied my atmosphere. And I've tried to get you to pay attention and you didn't listen. So will you listen to this? In that way, she's closed down our economies. She's seized our attention. I believe our job is to listen now. Will we listen, do you think? Yeah, we got to. We got to. Yeah. We'll go down otherwise. One of my biggest messages that I keep telling people is, what are you going to keep after COVID-19? Because there is a silver lining in everything that we do. And as we go back to work and we go back to our busy lives and restaurants open and we rush around like crazy, what are we going to keep? What have we learned? Because there has never been... I mean, you walk out, I have a park six minutes walk from here. The ducks are out, the birds are out, the sky is clear, the air is clean. People are smiling at each other. It's like I'm falling in love with London, to be honest. And I will tell you openly, the London I walked through the day I was stranded here was very aggressive. It was very stressed. It was very pressured. And that's not only London, that's almost every big city where we crowd as humans. 
We just bombard each other with negativity somehow. Yeah. And bombard nature with negativity. Exactly. And I believe that at a community level, we're learning. Certainly, people are doing incredible things for each other, asking people what they need. How can I help you? And it's lovely. I realized when the school closed that the kids were going to be at a bit of a loose end. So I asked one of them, his name's Jack, he's six. I said to Jack, would you like to grow a beanstalk, your own beanstalk, Jack? And he said, yeah, I would. So anyway, I ended up with a class of 16 children, in, all in their homes, all on Zoom, with flower pots and beans. And each Monday at 2 p.m., I gave them a lesson on growing their own veg, basically. And they loved it. And then the next week, there were more of them, and then there were more of them. And it was that. <laughs> What an incredible use of the time of a Nobel Prize nominee. I mean, <laughs> can I ask you, will we ever end violence? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We have. Oh, wow. Oh, yes. It'll be a long time. Certainly not in, in my lifetime, probably not my daughter's lifetime either. But there are a lot of signs that we are becoming slowly, slowly more awakened to our nature. In other words, more thoughtful, more reflective, more attuned to the earth. And the earth is a great teacher. I think we've seen that, yeah. Yeah. I would be happy if every child in this country and all over every country, if every child learned to grow vegetables. It would be so practical because they're going to need to. The supermarkets are not going to be around very long. I want to close with one, one thing that I found really exemplary when you speak about anger there are two emotions that are i call them very active emotions so fear makes you go for flight and anger makes you hiss like a cat right it's like i want to scare you away you look at anger as a fuel mm -hmm. what does that mean to burn the other guy right is this how it's supposed to work i do think anger is like gasoline and if you spray it out at a person and somebody lights a match, you've got an inferno. If you put it in your engine, I think the right place is a carburetor, I'm not all that sure. And you use it as a fuel. What it does is it gets you up in the morning. It keeps you going. It makes you anxious and keen to get the job done. That's the fuel that anger is. So when you say it that way, this is what kept you going. Yeah. That you were angry at the violence. I was angry at nuclear weapons to start with. I thought they were outrageous and a terrifying way to try and solve conflict. And then I was angry that people were being basically encouraged to kill each other by the sales of arms and weapons. And the, what I was most angry about was the debris of war. You know, war doesn't solve anything for a start. Look at Afghanistan, look at Iraq, look at Syria. Also, it does so much damage to generations. When I meet people who were, my dad was in the First World War. It took generations for what he went through to heal. I'm still dealing with it. War is such a devastating and unnecessary way to try and deal with difference. And your anger as you taught us a bit a while ago, is, comes from humiliation. And the humiliation is that humanity should not 
do this to us. So no one has the right to use nuclear weapons for their own protection on the expense of others. No one has the right to use war as an economic model to advance an agenda or um, to advance an ideology. I have to say, Sila, I unfortunately have to end our conversation. They told me I have to keep those things to 40 minutes. I don't know why they told me that, but anyway, it's been amazing. I'm so delighted that you got that instruction from the universe. I've loved it, though. I'm so delighted that our paths cross every now and then. Yes. I think you inspired so many of us today. I, I'll say for me, the idea of growing your own vegetables, I think this is about time. It's about time we contribute to nature. We do something to us and to nature. When the um, lockdown is over, and when I come to London, I'll come and grow a window box for you. <laughs> I will absolutely take this as a promise in front of thousands of people listening to this podcast. It will be my absolute pleasure. I'll make you the best coffee in London and we have a much longer chat. Lovely. Sila, I'm, I am so, so grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mo. It's been an honor to be with you. Thank you. If you want to follow more of Silla's work, please visit www.thebusinessplanforpeace.org. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.